Well, who knows you best? Maybe picture that person in your mind. Who knows you the best? Or who are you fully known by? Now, it likely comes as no surprise that at this stage in my life, that would be my wife, Andrea, but it certainly doesn't need to be a spouse. Uh, In the scriptures, we read about a number of close friends, a family. We have, of course, David and Jonathan, who were very close. We have in the New Testament, Paul, as well as Timothy, who was a son in the Lord to him. Jesus with his disciples, certainly. Uh, John the Apostle, the disciple whom Jesus loved. Who are you fully known by, or who would you say knows you the absolute best? Now I want you to think about how or what feelings are conjured up for you when you think about someone fully knowing you. Uh, You maybe are familiar with a quote from C.S. Lewis who said that the the issue with love is that when you open yourself up to love, you also open up yourself to be extremely vulnerable and therefore you open up yourself to having your heart broken. But he said, if you do not love, then your life and your soul and your heart will essentially become a coffin in which it will go into the ground and you will not experience the beauty that is life. And so as we get to know someone, as someone gets to know us, there is a natural vulnerability that comes with that and a given away responsibility to another person to manage and to hold on to all of the things that they are learning and discovering about us, the good and the bad, and for them to hold that in respect, in honesty, in integrity, and in love, first and foremost, to be known for someone to search us, our souls, and to come to know us. That's the emphasis of this morning's teaching. Absolute knowledge claims David, the psalmist here, of God's knowledge of you and of me, that we are completely and fully known by him. We will explore why this is good news, but let's first start with a general introduction to the Psalms. We are here in this summer studying one particular Psalm, but of course it's helpful to understand the Psalms more broadly and more generally before we get specific about Psalm 139. The Psalms, as you may or may not be familiar, are a collection of 150 poems found in the Old Testament that express a wide variety of emotions. You have love, you have adoration, you have sorrow, you have dependence, you have fear, pain, thankfulness, anxiety, depression, hope, and worship. Nearly every single life situation that you or I face or every single emotion that we feel at some point is represented and displayed in the Psalms. The early Christians, they sang and prayed the Psalms. Colossians 3, verse 16, we read this. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. Have you ever noticed this? Singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Or how about 1 Corinthians 14, verse 26? What then, brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. That which these verses are referencing are the psalms and the songs that people would sing from the psalms. This is the hymn book. Some of you have been in the church for a long time. You remember hymn books. Uh, maybe you're, you know, you know, you remember hymn books, then you rem- remember the overhead projector, and now you know about these digital projectors. You've been through the phases. It's kind of nice that we no longer have to set hymn books out. Certainly a convenience there. But the Psalms were the hymn book 
for the Israelites, for these ancient people. Some other examples throughout church history, when Benedict was forming monasteries, he directed that all of the Psalms were to be sung, read, and prayed at least once a week. During medieval times, the Psalms served as the most well-known part of the Bible for Christians. And at the Reformations, the Psalms played a key role in the reform of the church. And so in this sense, it's important to recognize that then the Psalms also matter for you and for me today. Firstly, they're a, they're a lesson. They're a lesson in that we come to understand generations of worshipers connected to the very same God, offering praise in every area of life. And as we are learned and are taught, how then we are invited to speak to God honestly. Sometimes you'll read the Psalms and you'll come to a part and it doesn't feel comfortable with the right sensibilities that maybe you think about when you think about talking to God. Yet the Psalms invite us, therefore, in that way, first as a lesson and then as an invitation that we're not simply to read the Psalms, but then we're to be immersed in them in order that they may shape how you and I relate to God. We're invited to use the Psalms to then reuse them in our daily approach to God and also in our public worship. So now that we know the Psalms more broadly, how about this Psalm, Psalm 139 more specifically? Well, it's a psalm of David, as I've already said, and it's a very personal psalm in in sharing with us the intimate knowledge and the relationship that David had with God. The first 18 verses can be considered praise, and then the second, 19 to 24, are petition made in a time of distress. Jewish doctors believe that this is the most excellent of all of the psalms of David, as they see it as very pious and a devout meditation on God's God's omniscience, which I'll define here in a moment. So with that, let's go to the psalm itself and explore why this absolute knowledge of God over you and me is, in fact, good news. David begins, O Lord, it should come as no surprise to us who he is addressing here. The Lord, the one true God, Yahweh, O Lord, David says, you have searched me and known me. Now I want you to notice in this first line that these first words are said in the past tense. David is saying, God, this is, this is something that you have done. You have searched me and you have known me. Now the original word for search here means to explore, to search out. What is David saying? Oh Lord, you have explored me. You have searched me out. Certainly think in your mind about searching, exploring. You know, maybe you think about the Crusades in some ways. For me, when I was first meditating on this passage, uh, hide and go seek and my house with my kids came to mind. You know how hide and go seek works, right? You go and hide and then what is the person doing who's the person that's seeking. They're trying to find you. They're trying to explore. They're trying to search for you that you may be found. Is this not what David is expressing? Oh Lord, you have searched me. You are exploring me, coming to know me. Well, how does this make you feel? How does it sit with you? The fact that the Lord God, the maker of heaven and an earth, is searching you out, exploring you. 
David then says, you have known me. So you've searched and now you know. Again, the original word means to know, to notice, to hear of, to learn, to reveal, be or become known, or even to realize. So you've searched and now you've revealed who I am. 1 Corinthians 13 verse 12 says this, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face, now in part, then as I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. Speaking to the already not yet reality in which we live, and yet Jesus has come, lived, died, ascended to the Father. And so we live now with the Spirit of God inside of us, and yet there is still sin within us, and we are longing and looking forward to the day when Jesus promises that he will return. Yet in this in-between, this already and not yet of God's kingdom, we are still fully known by God. So as I asked about searching, how does the search make you feel or how does it sit with you that you are fully known and realized and revealed by God? You cannot hide from him. You are like a pane of glass before God. He sees everything about you. He knows you more than anyone ever will or even you know yourself. This is where David begins, O Lord, you have searched me and you have known me. He goes on, You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. Here David is continuing to assert what he has said in verse 1, beginning to give examples over the next five verses of God's absolute knowledge. And so here and now, as we saw in the first verse, he said it in the past tense, you have, notice the tense of this verse, you know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. This is now the present tense. Lord, you know the past, you actually know now as well the present. Not only the past search and knowledge, there is present knowledge. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. Think of this in the sense of he knows your everyday activity. He knows and he sees it. David then says, you discern my thoughts from afar. The word here for discern is to understand, to see, to pay attention, to consider, to teach, and to examine. You discern, you pay attention, you consider even my thoughts from afar. From afar is just letting us know that no matter where God is, and he is everywhere, omnipresent, as Spencer will address in a couple of weeks, he knows what is in my mind. Verse 3, you search out my path and my lying down, and are acquainted with all of my ways. Once again, this word search comes up for us. And here it's in the reference to measuring up. You measure up my path and my lying down. While I am awake and while I am sleeping, the Lord knows and sees. He's measured up. He's measured up my direction. He then says, you're acquainted with all of my ways. Nothing is hidden. He sees all Everything. Verse 4, even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. 
Two things I want to point out here. Tongue, speech. You know it all together. What stands out for me in in the study that I did is that God cares and knows about a simple thing as our speech. The words that we use. He not only keeps the world in motion, he also knows about my words and how I use them to be a blessing or a curse. Reminds me of James 3, verses 1 to 6 on the screen for us. This first verse is enough for a teacher to shake in fear and reverence. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. Even before a word is on my tongue, O Lord, you know it altogether, which also shows us that God knows the past, the present, the future. This is omniscience. What does omniscient mean? Having complete or unlimited knowledge, awareness, or understanding, perceiving all things. This is God. This is an attribute of God, his omniscience, the fact that he is all-knowing. And would you not expect that if God does exist, that he should have this character trait, that he should be all-knowing? Otherwise, could he, in fact, be God? And the scriptures testify to this. Proverbs 15, verse 3, the eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. Because his eyes are on it, he knows and sees. Psalm 147, verse 5, great is our Lord and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. Daniel 2, verse 22, he reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells with him. Hebrews 4, verse 13, and no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Tim Keller helps us in understanding another purpose of the Psalms Yet speaking to the reality of what the Psalms tell us about God, he writes this, The Psalms help us see God. God, not as we wish or hope him to be, but as he actually reveals himself. The descriptions of God in the Psalter are rich beyond human intervention. He is more holy, more wise, more fearsome, more tender and loving than we would ever imagine him to be. The Psalms fire our imaginations into new realms, yet guide them toward the God who actually 
exists. All-knowing God. Verse 5, you hem me in behind and before and you lay your hand upon me. Now, I don't know about you, but I do not use the language of hem very often. So what is meant by this, you hem me in? Well, let's look at a couple other translations. The New American Standard Bible words it in this way. You have encircled me behind and in front and placed your hand upon me. The contemporary English version. And with your powerful arm, you protect me from every side. Or how about Eugene Peterson's paraphrase, the message. I look behind me and you're there. Then up ahead and you're there too. Your reassuring presence coming and going. William A. Van Gemmeren in his commentary puts it this way in helping us understand. The accused is not afraid of his judge. The divine judge is more than an arbiter because he is also the one in whom the psalmist has found protection. He hedges in his own for the purpose of protection. The laying on of a hand is a gentle gesture giving reassurance It brings me and makes me think of Exodus 33, verse 22, where Moses asks to see God. In Exodus 33, verse 22, God says to Moses, While my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Further context is God is saying, You cannot see me because if you see me, you will die. Yet here I will protect you. You will know that I am with you. David continues, and here in this section in which we will finish, he says, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. This knowledge, that which God possesses, it's too wonderful. It's, it's too much. It's, it's almost too overwhelming. Romans 11 verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgment and how inscrutable his ways. Turn to your neighbor and say inscrutable. And David says, it is high. I cannot attain it. Isn't it interesting And that often we praise God for what he has done rather than simply who he is, which is David's focus here in this section of the psalm. This is who you are. And I stand blown away. It's too marvelous. It's too high. I cannot attain it. All I can do is simply surrender if this is who you are. Well, how do we respond to this? If this is who God is, how do we respond to this God? If God knows everything and he fully exists everywhere at once, this can, as you can imagine, be a comfort, right? Wow, there's not a place that I can go away from you. You're always there protecting me. Yet more often than not, many of us perceive this as a threat, The language, we go to, you hem hem me in. God reassuring David of his protection because 
you would need protection if you felt like there was a threat. Where does this come from? This should not surprise us. Genesis 3, 7 to 10. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. Isn't it interesting that as Adam and Eve turn and rebel against God, they want to hide. Suddenly there is a threat. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And then they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. In this sense, it is completely natural that in the hands of an all-knowing God, we would not want him to see and to know everything. So I must hide. We do this with some of the closest people in our lives, do we not? I can't let them see who I actually am. This growing imposter syndrome in our lives and in our culture. They cannot see me for who I really am. Even with believers. Even though we sit with a group of Christians at times. We want to hold things back. Even though the believers should be the most humble people in the room. That you ought to be able to be the most honest with. Because they also understand their condition. And that they need Jesus who has redeemed and saved them. Yet we sit there and we go, how was your week? Oh, pretty good. You know, pretty busy. Hmm, busy. Cool. Yeah, the new normal. Cool. How about you? I'm good. Okay. Next, like, come on. Yet we run, we want to hide. So in this sense, there's a couple of responses that I see with, with knowledge of this. If this is who God is, if God does in fact exist, here are a couple of responses. One, you hide, which then leads to you rejecting God. You see this in a couple of different ways. There's one posture, which is just that anything goes We've talked about this in the past, that this is license. It's, there is no God, and therefore there is no right and wrong, and we ought to just live how we want as long as we can feel good about yourself. And this is a natural response to take if, well, if there is a God and he does see me, well, I don't want it, that to happen. So there probably is no God, because that's an uncomfortable thought. And so you're increasingly hearing and seeing people say, well, there is no right and wrong. It's whatever you want to do. And don't let the big guy in the sky come down upon your fun, as long as you're enjoying yourself. Because in essence, this is a much more comfortable way to live. We don't want to have to deal with conviction or the reality that there is sin. Just do what you want. Make sure you don't hurt people. And so we think, well, that's a comfortable way to live. Just do whatever you want. There's a subgroup here that could be an atheist with the worldview who doesn't believe in the existence of God, but then still does have some standards for living, which they believe help with a flourishing society or what science reveals to us as truth, yet rejects the idea that there's a God who sees your actions and cares. So this is one way. So we, we hide, but then obviously it leads to then rejection because it's hard to live in reality if there is a God that sees me and knows me completely and does maybe have an ethical or moral standard upon my life and the way that we want the world to work. And so it's much, it's much more comfortable just to reject that. Let's just figure it out. Let's get along and everything will be fine. But then there's also a way of hiding. And this is what more of us in this room are likely guilty of. It's the nothing goes posture of legalism. 
So there is a God or something out there who expects and wants us to live in a certain way. And so I must live in meeting that standard for God's approval. It's self-righteousness. It's earning my own standing before God. It's saying, yes, God does see me and know me, so I've got to work in overdrive to overperform, to overobey, so that God will like me and approve of me. God, please be with us. Why do we pray that? If you are saved and have the Holy Spirit inside of you, do you actually believe that God is away from you? No. Why do we do it? Because we live with the subconscious reality that we need to hide and that he can't see us. And we heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden. He's omnipresent. He's everywhere. He's with you. Thank you, Lord, that you're with me. Thank you that I can lean upon you in everything. Where can I run from your presence? As we'll get to. Yet, I think in times we live in the subconscious posture of he will be with me if I'm perfect and if I obey him to the standard that I think I need to obey him this week. Then he'll approve and love me. Yet that is not the gospel. And so the other response to this reality of who God is as, as being omniscient is a response of repentance, allowing God, accepting the reality that he does see you fully as you are, turning from your sin and depending in faith upon Jesus Christ who was perfect in your place and so you don't have to be. Which then ultimately leads to surrender because in Christ we are clothed using a very churchy term in his righteousness, our right living or right standard before God, Philippians 3 verse 9, and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. And when you and I know this, when we surrender to this, when we put our faith in this, we can then bear to let God expose us and to overcome our distorted self-views, which are confused and so incredibly biased. And we can then step in hope and faith, believing Romans 8 verse 1, therefore there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And when we live from this posture, when we remind ourselves daily of what Christ has therefore done for us, and we welcome in comfort through faith in Christ that God sees us and knows us completely, we'll become more humble people. We'll look to embrace others who also fall short. And it will lead us to lives of worship as we recognize that we are sinners in need of a Savior. Another quote from Tim Keller To be loved but not known is comforting but superficial. To be known and not loved is our greatest fear. But to be fully known and truly loved is, well, it's a lot like being loved by God. It is what we need more than anything. It liberates us from pretense, humbles us out of our self-righteousness, and fortifies us for any difficulty life can throw at us. Fully known, yet fully loved. Brothers and sisters, what would it look like 
that if we are those made in the image of God, called to resemble our Savior, what would it look for us to live in a community in which this was also our posture towards one another? That I could become fully known, yet I'm also going to be fully loved. Would we sit around in our groups and communities, in our DNAs, and would we say, how are your week going? Oh, good. Okay, how can I pray for you? And we give prayer requests about other people rather than the intense, in, intensity of our own souls. And this week I was just so filled with pride. I was arrogant. I was lustful. I was rude. And I need you all to know that about me so that you help me step forward and stand in Christ's shed blood. Because also when we, when we fail to confess to the full degree at which we have the opportunity in Christ to confess, I think what we're also saying is that Christ's sacrifice was not enough for us and so therefore I can't share it all with you. Now, I totally know that there are safe people and there are unsafe people and you need to be able to be aware of that. But... May I encourage us that as we live this out as a community, that if we desire to see our communities look more like heaven so that every person has a relationship with Jesus, we must become the type of people and the type of community where we can really be honest with each other and we stand in our acceptance and forgiveness of Jesus because then we can respond and forgive and accept others in the same way. And this gets to the reality that as we repent and as we have faith, which leads then to our surrender, Jesus then goes and he sends us out on mission. Tell the world, represent to the world this incredible love and forgiveness and grace that I have offered you because you are fully known. You have been searched out. And so we come to John 21 verse 17 in which Peter, as many of us are familiar, denied Jesus three times. And what, what does Jesus do in John 21, verse 17? He said to him the third time. Notice that Peter denies him three times. And three times Jesus calls Peter to go out on mission again. You have not disqualified yourself, Peter. Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Go, go, I am with you. And I know you, and I know what you have done, yet I've forgiven you. This thing that I just did, it was for you too, Peter. Brothers and sisters, we have an opportunity as a community. And so I want to invite you now just to close your eyes. Maybe this is something you would do later, because right now you're a little frazzled. I would invite you, you know, meditation... Um, we don't meditate like pantheists do and that we're not trying to come to a place of, of emptiness or to nirvana. We are trying to come to a place in which the scriptures be- become the language of our soul. And so that's what meditation upon the scriptures do. And we just sit and we go quietly and silently in our minds. Oh Lord, What comes to mind when you say, oh Lord? Oh Lord. Oh Lord. You have searched me. You have searched me.
you have searched me. Hmm. And known me. You know me? Me? Everything? You can't. And yet, what does he say back? I can. I'm safe. I'll protect you. Surrender. Trust. I am with you. Do not be afraid.